All right, here we go. Welcome to the 1000 Hours Outside podcast. My name is Ginny Urich, and I'm so excited to bring you two guests today, Lauren and Laura. So this is great, uh, who I've actually been connected with Lauren for quite a long time and Laura for maybe a little bit less, but for a long time through Instagram. So thank you for being here. You also have another friend, Stephanie, and the three of you have written a book together. Congrats. Yeah, thank you. It's, it's good to be here. So Lauren Giordano is Chicky and Rue. So that's the funny thing. You get to know people sometimes through their Instagram handle. So even recently, I was like, who is this Lauren on my list? <laughs> I had to go back. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Chicky and Rue. And I think we've been, I feel like I've been connected with you literally since I got on Instagram, your beautiful artwork and have seen your nature things for years and years. And then Laura Stroop is at Firefly Nature School. And same thing, just stunning artwork, really incredible activities to connect kids with nature. And then Stephanie Hathaway is an artist. She's at Stephanie Hathaway Designs. And the three of you wrote a book together. This is fantastic. So you're going to have to tell us the history. Everyone's going to want to know about how the three of you connected and then what sparks a book. So let's start there. Oh, so exciting. I mean, it's a it's like a homeschool mama nature club, right? And we <laughs> have Laura and I have been working together for like four has it been four years? I think it's been almost five. Almost wow. Five. Wow. I have no sense of time since the pandemic and everything <laughs> yeah, else. It's been a, long time. <laughs> it's been a very long yeah. time. And Steph came on board many years ago too. So every month we release a collection of nature studies with Steph's unit study and artwork and my artwork and activities. And that's been a monthly subscription for years. Wow. Yeah, we've worked together on that for several years. And um, it's been so much fun. We have fun collaborating, even though like we've actually never met in person other than, no. you know, Zoom or, you know, texting, but we feel like we know each other so well, um, but we've never met in person. So that is wild to yeah. have been business partners and friends for such a long time and not to have met in person. Where does everybody live? I'm in Florida and Laura and Steph are I'm in Missouri. In, uh, yeah, uh, Steph's up near Kansas City, and then I'm in Springfield area, so down okay. in southwest Missouri in the Ozarks. I mean, you have a book coming out. Are you planning to meet in person? That would be amazing. <laughs> like hold the book together and get a picture? Yeah, and have a, like an actual picture that we don't have to like knit together with, you know, electronic or technological devices. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So did you connect at the beginning just through homeschooling and your love of nature? Absolutely. Yes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, we all yeah. had small businesses. We were growing them and collaboration is a great, a great way to grow and network. And it all sort of just unfolded naturally and organically. Yeah. What a cool thing. For so sure. what are some of the overlaps of things that you do? Versus what are some of the unique things that you do? So I know the three of you are artists. Do you focus on different types of art? And Stephanie's an artist. So what are the overlaps and what are the differences? 
You want to take that Um, one away, Laura? I'll start. Yeah. (laughs) My artwork is not my artwork. It's actually um, a friend of mine does a lot of artwork for me. That's not my forte. Um, (laughs) So I, I do a lot of writing. So nature studies, uh, writing curriculum is something I've been doing for 20 plus years in the nature realm and science realm. So that's kind of my wheelhouse. So that doesn't overlap. Well, I mean, Steph and Lauren both write stuff as well. But when we do our wild mag, our monthly subscription, and when we did and worked on the book, we were able to kind of each take our own little section and use our you know best talents and, and work well together in that capacity. So yeah, what a cool thing. Yeah. I love that. So the book that's coming out, and it will actually already be out by the time this podcast launches so people can go purchase is called Nature School. Lessons and Activities to Inspire Children's Love for Everything Wild. This is by Lauren, Laura, and Stephanie, three authors coming together to create this beautiful book. It's coming out just at the start of summer. So perfect for summer learning. I just am such a passionate person about putting the worksheets away for the summer. You know, sometimes kids come home with these huge learning packs. Like, no, like, let's learn at least in a different way. Do the summer being outside, right? exploring your surroundings and finding all the fascination out there. And so this book is coming out just in time for that nature school. So talk us through the process of you're already doing a lot of stuff together. Where does the book fit in? How does that happen? Well, it was the next natural progression and the format of creating this book together as a team was much the same as what we've been doing every month, where Laura primarily did the writing, the writing of the lessons, all of the information. And Steph and I did a lot of artwork, diagrams. Um, You've got life cycles and anatomies and things like that, which is what we normally do. So it was kind of taking what we've already been doing for years, but, you know, putting your big boy pants on and doing the grown-up version. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. What was the hardest part of it? (laughs) Oh, boy. Well, (laughs) what do you think, Laura? (laughs) Well, I think just, I mean, as far as writing the book goes or creating the book itself and not the whole process behind that, but I think the hardest part was just getting started and figuring out how to kind of divide up the different sections and the workload and Steph did a great job of kind of editing that process and organizing everything from like a big picture down to like the minute details. So made my job like so much easier. I know for sure. But I think that just kind of getting started was the hardest part for me. Oh, and then kind of <laughs> tearing down the way too many thousands of words I had written. That's what I was going to say. And editing that out. But yeah. Yeah, We're all really passionate. And it's hard to know when to stop. We could have made five books with (laughs) the ideas and content that we (laughs) were trying to put forth. And Steph is a wonder woman and she has a great vision and she was able to reel it in a little bit. But we get a little out of control when we're excited about something. (laughs) Well, nature... Yeah. Nature study is such a broad topic. It's an (laughs) endless topic, really. What are your favorite things to study in nature? Ooh, that's a good question. I would say flora, you know, all different kinds of plants and trees. And I I love animals and I love terrain, but I'm I'm most interested in probably plants, I would say. Mm -hmm. What about you, Laura? Um, Nice. I probably am more interested in animals and wildlife. 
but I also, I've come to appreciate plants a lot more, but I have a harder time like with plant identification and things like that. So like I gravitate toward um, wildlife and I guess I worked for several years at a wildlife museum and at a zoo and doing like education programs with animals. Um, so I think maybe that, mm-hmm. you know, lends to my, <laughs> my wildlife preference, but I think anything that's, you know, right outside your door, whether it's a plant or an animal, something that you can like see right there and interact with and even like pick up. Absolutely. Um, is always fun, regardless of what it is. Well, I mean, <laughs> as long as it's not venomous or something like that. I think it's really exciting to see how everything is connected, right? Like certain plants are food for certain animals. Certain animals will pollinate certain plants. Certain plants grow places because of the animals that carry the seeds and just the way that everything is intertwined is, I mean, it's endless. You can go down a million rabbit holes by starting with one place and pretty soon yeah. you see why all these other things are a result of it. And that's really fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. And that's how our brain works with all these different connections. That's why it's such a good way to learn is totally through the study good. of nature, because through studying nature, you can learn every topic in a way that makes a lot of connections. It makes it easier to remember. You can see your loves come out in this book because there's a lot about flora and there's a lot about animals and wildlife. So talk us through the structure of the book and how you ended up structuring it that way. So the book is laid out um, in five chapters and each chapter correlates to a biome. Each biome chapter has information on the terrain, the climate, the flora, the fauna, Um, You have maps, diagrams, life cycles, classifications, processes, both in text form and in diagram and pictorial visuals. Um, And then Laura did an amazing job of (laughs) including so much information. And then at the end of each chapter, there are hands-on lessons for hands-on learning. Yeah. So was it hard to come up with that original format or did you kind of know you were going to go that route to begin with? I think we had like already planned when we first thought of doing the book. Is that right, Lauren? I'm trying to think back. We had already planned like the general format where we wanted to do the five different chapters and kind of the biomes and, but we wanted it to be more Mm hands-on than just like a, a like research or reference book. So, and more interactive, you know? Right. So the lessons that Laura wrote at the end of each chapter, there's several different activities you can do. And that makes the book far more interactive and engaging. So you're not just reading it and putting it back on a shelf. You're going to come back to it again and again. You're going to use it for more than, you know, for getting outside. And Mm -hmm. my favorite thing about Laura's activities and lessons is that they are so simple. So time and time again, I've heard parents homeschooling or not homeschooling talk about how they don't like a ton of prep. Right. Like we all love science experiments, but who wants to collect 45 materials and try to source everything to do it? So Laura wrote these so simply that you'll have everything on hand already. They're everyday items, or you can simply go outside and access those few minimal supplies that you need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it's a time thing to try and gather all those resources. So if you want to do these things and it's easier, then you end up doing them. 
Before we continue, I want to talk to you about something that could add an exciting layer to your outdoor time. Have you ever thought of transforming your 1,000 hours outside into a language immersion experience? Well, TalkBox.mom can make that happen. With TalkBox.mom, you'll start talking in another language with your family the very same day you start. Their unique approach focuses on using phrases in real-life situations, not just learning individual vocabulary words. And you don't need to be sitting at a desk to do it. Imagine your child whining that they're hungry on the trail. But in French, Spanish, Chinese, or one of their 11 languages, you'll create a fluent foundation for the language that can be used throughout your child's life. For the listeners of the 1000 Hours Outside podcast, get $20 off your first box and phrase book with a coupon code ADVENTURE. Just go to talkbox.mom adventure, choose your language, and start your bilingual journey. The founder of TalkBox.mom is Adelaide, and Adelaide has been on our podcast. So you can check out that episode called We Should Adventure Whenever We Can. It's episode 110. I know you'll love it. Check out TalkBox.mom today slash adventure and get $20 off your first box and phrase book. Well, okay, so let's pick a biome. Laura, pick a biome of the five. Which one do you want to talk about? Uh, let's talk about, Ooh, that's tough. How about grasslands? <laughs> okay. You know, what's so cool. I just read this book called the great. Al- it's not called the great alone. It's called the four winds, the four winds by Kristen <laughs> Hanna. And it's all a book about the dust bowl. And that it's so interesting. I had no idea oh, how wow. in depth and how, really traumatic that was for so many people who were planting in the grasslands, but the grass was really meant it served a purpose. And so then it just ended up being these crazy dust storms where they would have to wear masks and (laughs) the dust would seep in through the house. It'd be all over the place. It's so interesting. So I just read that book by Kristen Hanna. Oh, well, good timing. (laughs) Yeah. And then loved reading about grasslands in your book, Nature School. So Talk to us about some of the things in there, like, uh, okay, the purpose of wildfires is in that section. Sure. I mean, wildfires can't, well, we always think of wildfires as something that um, you want to avoid and are dangerous and horrible for the environment. But I mean, naturally they've occurred for, you know, a very long period of time. They serve a purpose to, in a prairie or a grassland or like a savanna, an ecosystem that has a lot of grasses, the wildfires are going to be important to get rid of any like woody vegetation. So, you know, you don't have trees growing up or other woody plants growing up in that area and the grasses can then thrive. And they have like growth points that are so close to the ground or even underneath the ground where they can still emerge even after a fire has gone through. So wildfires are, you know, vital in some cases. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Question, what's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Read a few chapters of that book, start painting that guest bedroom, tackle that pile of laundry, play a card game with your kids. A lot of us spending our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. If you're feeling stuck, therapy is something that can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. 
Therapy is a wonderful thing. It can help you learn positive coping skills or show you how to navigate properly setting boundaries. With BetterHelp, it's easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try and visit BetterHelp.com slash 1000 hours to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash 1000 hours. I have been looking for simple ways to form healthy habits and get the nutrients my body needs when my immune system feels unsupported. And that's why I decided to give AG1 a try. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics and more, but it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. And it makes me feel nourished and ready to face the day. As a parent, longevity is on my mind more than ever before. I want to make sure I'm taking really good care of myself so I can continue to show up for the moments that matter with my kids. Every day, AG1 helps me build long-term health with daily nutrients that support brain, gut, and immune health. All it takes is one scoop a day, and I'm setting myself up for the long run. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm excited to welcome them as a new partner. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash 1000. That's drinkag1.com slash 1000. Check it out. That's super interesting because also I never think about wildfires in terms of grass. I think about wildfires in terms of trees. Right. Sure. And I mean, and then in the forest, I mean, some species of trees actually require the heat from wildfires in order for their seeds to emerge and to be able to grow and reproduce. So forest fires, while dangerous also in some situations, historically have been necessary or, you know, plants to be able to reproduce and grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so interesting that they go in the grasslands too. In that chapter, you talk about Tornado Alley. And I thought that was interesting because it just brings that together that in a lot of the areas where there are grasslands, that tends to be where the tornadoes are more prominent. Is that correct? Um, it tends to be, I want to say I grew up in Iowa where, you know, grasslands <laughs> abound. Maybe that's why I gravitate toward um, learning about the prairie because it surrounded me where I grew up. But yeah, we lived in Tornado Alley and miraculously I've moved down <laughs> to Southwest Missouri where apparently I also live in Tornado Alley. <laughs> so I can't escape, but it was something I grew up with. I mean, there were, you know, every, you know, late spring and summer were always, you know, we had thunderstorms, tornado warnings, we had to run to the basement, you know, take cover. Only once do I ever remember seeing a funnel cloud when I was a kid. But, you know, there's still you have those warnings that you have to deal with. And that can be super scary. But it's just part of living in that area or being in that area. Wow. But you did see one. When I was a kid. Yeah. We were at a track meet. And I remember the sky was like an eerie, like greenish color. It was super kind of freaky. It's not something you'll forget anyway. And the tornado siren started going off and my mom's like, get in the car. And we drove home a couple miles to our house and we ran down to the basement, got under the desk. And I don't think the tornado ever touched down. 
but I do remember my rabbit was outside in her hutch and I was so scared. I'm like, we need to get my bunny. And my mom's like, we're not going outside. You have to stay here. Wow. But everything was okay. We all survived. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was frightening. You don't forget stuff like that when, you know, it has a big impact on you when you were a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just interesting that it coincides a lot with this grasslands. One of the activities in that chapter is to make a tornado in a bottle. So tell us about that. Um, Lauren, do you want to talk about it or? No, no. You Sorry, got, I feel you like I'm <laughs> monopolizing the conversation. You're a tornado girl. <laughs> I'm a tornado girl. Yeah, yeah thanks. <laughs> um, it's a super simple activity. Um, it just kind of replicates the spinning of the funnel, but basically you're filling a like a two liter bottle and putting the cap on and then kind of spinning it around so you can get the funnel moving and you can watch it. If you put like glitter or something in there, which I am totally against glitter <laughs> in my house, but if you do sprinkle a little glitter in there, um, you can w get a better view or kind of see the funnel even, even more, but we won't be doing that at our house, the glitter part. <laughs> <laughs> but like you said, that's super easy. What do you need? You need a bottle, you need water. So you need some easy water. supplies. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Just be able to visualize. Yeah. Okay. So then what are just some other favorite parts of grasslands, either the animals or the <laughs> flora? What sticks out to you? Well, uh, yeah, I feel like throughout the book and not just in grasslands, but I can talk about it or speak to it in the grasslands chapter, but throughout the book, it has more of a global perspective. So even though I grew up in the Midwest, in the United States, we don't just talk about the North American prairie because this book, you know, is geared toward a wide audience. And I mean, we do that in our monthly nature study subscriptions where, you know, we try not to make it specific to one area of the world because people, you know, we have subscribers in Japan and subscribers in the UK and, you know, subscribers in Singapore. So it's like, we don't want to just focus on one area. Plus I like for my kids to learn about other areas of the world as well. So going back to grasslands, we cover, you know, North American prairie, but also Savannah and Africa and Australia and the Asian steppes and the South American pampas. So there's a lot to learn about different regions of the world, which I think is important. That's a cool way to learn geography, right? Yeah, oh, totally. To say, look, this is <laughs> yeah. similar. This biome is here, but it's also here and here and here. And these are some right. similarities and these are some differences. I love that. What do you think, Lauren? What do you love about the yes. grasslands chapter? Well, I love the flora. I love the grassland successions. <laughs> you know, you it's it seems like a simple thing. If you were to stand in a field, you're like, okay, it's a field. But there's so much more to it that isn't apparent, isn't readily apparent. So it kind of, more than other biomes, it kind of forces you to have that attention to detail and look a little closer. And then you're seeing, well, what's camouflaging? What's nesting under the ground? What's nesting under the leaves of the grasses and the weeds? There's just so much there if we can just draw in a little closer. And that's that's fascinating to me. Yeah, that is interesting. We have grass, we're on this hobby farm and we've been here, we're going into our fourth summer and we have grass. I don't know if it's considered prairie grass. It is overtaking. It is like an overtaking <laughs> type of grass. So I grew up in a neighborhood where the grass is like this tall right. and you mow it. This grass will be like up to your hips in a couple days if you don't keep on it. Like, what is this? But it is a thing that when we go out into an area where we haven't dealt with it and it's super tall, you really can't see anything else 
it just seems like that's all there is, is grass. So yeah, that's a really interesting point, Lauren, that when you look through that chapter, there's so much in there, even when it all kind of looks the same. Absolutely. There's secrets hiding. <laughs> yeah. Always. And I loved in that one, you could press the grasses, like there's pressed grass and pressed wildflowers. So I've never thought about that, just pressing the different types of grasses. It looked so beautiful. So yeah, that's a little sample of what's in the book, although obviously it's so much more comprehensive than that. Let's pick one more. So Lauren, why don't you pick a chapter? Oh, let's do wetlands. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I knew that one was coming. Yeah, that's my passion. <laughs> okay, why is it your passion? Well, because I live, live in, in the Florida? swamp. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I live in the cypress trees with the alligators. I love it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. So in that one, talking about the animals, which I know Laura loves <laughs> to talk about, but there's interesting names. Like, you know, we talk about rabbits, but there's swamp rabbits and there's marsh deer. So tell us some of the unique things about what is a, a marsh deer versus a deer that we see running through the forest or a swamp rabbit? You take over that one, Laura. Okay. I was going to say something that is going to live in a swampy area, like a marsh deer um, is going to have feet adapted for the wet mud. So wider hooves, and they're going to be adapted to eat the vegetation found in wetlands, which, you know, are going to be different than you're going to find in um, like a white-tailed deer that's in the forest we have here in the Ozarks. So um, similar body structure and shape, maybe slightly different coloring to blend in better in a wetland environment. And then just a few anatomical differences that will allow them to survive in the wetlands ecosystem. Usually yeah. a little smaller too, because they're not bulking up to you know, sustain a winter or a period. <laughs> Stay warm of, all winter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our deer are a lot smaller than northern deer for sure. Interesting. Well, and I've never seen a rabbit go in the water. And that was one of the things that I said about the marsh rabbit is that it would hop away and go into the water. If there's a predator, I guess. It can swim. Yeah, or hide from predators. Yeah, in the water. Yeah, I've never seen that. Yeah, you don't think about that with a cottontail. You hop in your yard. Yeah, right. Uh, they run into dense vegetation. You know. Yeah, you'll never find them. <laughs> and, but yeah, being able to hide um, in a wetland is a you know a lot different adaptation than than the cottontails. Yeah, that's interesting. I think a swamp rabbit would be a great. <laughs> title for a book or something <laughs> some sort of book series the maybe Swamp the next Rabbit. one maybe the next yeah. one <laughs> yes. okay so lauren talk us through growing up in the wetlands well it's wet and it's hot and it's humid <laughs> but you know a lot of people think wetlands or florida wetlands specifically don't have seasons because it doesn't snow it doesn't get extremely cold um it's pretty temperate year round. But in fact, there are a ton of seasons and a ton of natural cycles occurring in this process, even if it's a relatively similar climate year round. So you're still going to have mating seasons and breeding seasons and nesting seasons, right? You're still going to have seed dispersal seasons. You're going to have different weeds and vegetation that bloom um, and die off. And there's just so much that takes place over the year that you're not looking at it in a traditional sense. But if, again, that attention to detail, if you look a little closer, you can see that there really are changes going on. And I just, I find that really interesting. Yeah. You talk in that chapter about the purpose of mosquitoes. Oh. So I think everyone really wants to know what that purpose is. <laughs> to annoy us. 
No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to give us a reason to like slap things but um, and get our frustrations out. No, mosquitoes serve an important purpose as a like a food source, basically, for other animals. Mm. I know around here, bats, the bats that we have eat thousands of mosquitoes over the course of a week or a month. So they are a great food source for many creatures, whether they're larvae in the water or whether they're, you know, adults flying around. So I would say that is their main purpose. Hmm. I often ask that same question about ticks, though. I haven't found <laughs> a good enough reason for those. <laughs> well, it's interesting because the dragonflies eat them, too. And you have cool information about dragonflies in this book. But we have a lot of dragonflies where we're at. I'm not quite sure why. And I love dragonflies. They're so cool. But we had a big storm last year. And then all of a sudden, the dragonflies were gone. And all of a sudden, there were tons of mosquitoes. So I like, almost think people are always like, well, how do you deal with mosquitoes? And I'm like, if somehow <laughs> you could get a bunch of bats or dragonflies, they would eat them. And it really right. actually makes a huge difference. I just don't know how people go about doing that. But dragonflies are so beautiful, and I know they eat them too. So it's noticeable. It's a noticeable difference with the amount of mosquitoes that are outside, depending on what you have that's eating them. So this predator-prey relationship, this is woven throughout the entire book. Right. Tell us about why you ended up weaving that in. Sure. Well, I think that one of the reasons, or probably the main reason, is because we tried throughout the book to show the ecosystem survive all of the living things, predators and prey, and then non-living things in the ecosystem have to be able to interact together and for the ecosystem to prosper. So predator and prey are really... I think obvious choice when you're talking about a relationship between animals and an ecosystem or even herbivores and plants, you know, and how one relies on the other and, you know, populations, as you said, populations um, of mosquitoes just took off when the dragonflies weren't around to eat them. So if they didn't have a predator to keep them in check, they just, the population exploded, um, which isn't good. So showing the value of both predators and prey species and how they balance each other out throughout the book and the different ecosystems that we discussed, I think is, you know, a really important feature. Mm -hmm. One of the activities in there is pond dipping. We've done that a couple of times and it is actually really incredible. Kind of like when you talk about the grasslands, you know, you're looking at water. It just looks mm -hmm. like water. But when you <laughs> pond dip, well, then you find all sorts of things. So Tell us about an experience that you've had pond dipping and what kind of things you find. Oh, pond dipping. It's like one scoop of pond water is a whole ecosystem in and of itself between That's the, true. yeah, the bacteria and the fungi, the algae, you have vegetation that grows under and on top of water, like pond weed. Um, you're going to have larvae and eggs from amphibians and reptiles. I mean, it just, if you have a microscope, if you can take a closer look, it's like whoosh, this huge world that we look at pond water, we think nothing's really going on in there unless you see a fish or a tadpole swimming. But there's so much more there that feeds into the greater ecosystem and the riverbanks and marsh banks around that area too. Yeah, it's fascinating. Mm -hmm. And once again, that's an easy one. You could maybe have a microscope or maybe have a magnifying glass or maybe not. You're just dipping in and you've got some sort of a container to put your things in so that you can observe. And Florida, one of our favorite places to go, I'm not sure if you've been there, Lauren. I'm not totally sure what area you're in, but we've been to this place called Circle B Bar Reserve. It's got a weird name. 
mm-hmm. and it's in the Orlando area. You could drive there if you're staying in the Orlando area and it's completely free. And it's one of my favorite places to go ever because there's so much to explore there. Have you been? I have you're not. Nodding. My kids have been. No. I'm dying to go. My kids have been. I have not <laughs> been yet. <laughs> Okay. I mean, it's just, it really does show it's, you're right on the water's edge almost everywhere. And there's all sorts of different animals there. There's wild pigs running through and the rabbits. And obviously there's alligators. They're mainly in the water, but sometimes they cross the path and just beautiful birds. It's stunning. It's one of the most stunning places that I've been. And there's all sorts of places that you can go. So it's an interesting thing to think about the biomes in terms of places that you visit. So we're heading into the summer tends to be a time where families might go visit a new place, a new state, a new country, depending on where they live. How many of these biomes have you experienced personally? Uh, Me personally, all of them. (laughs) All of the biomes in this book I've been to for sure. Mm -hmm. In general, yeah, all of them. And not to all the specific areas. Like I've not ever been to South America. Right. I've been to Central America, but not South America. And like I haven't been to Africa or Australia or even, I guess, to Asia. But because we have so many of these different biomes here in the United States, I've been to you know several in our country. But well, it's a really cool thing. It's something that I hadn't thought about until I looked. You picked these main biomes, and I thought. When you're talking about living in Florida, I'm like, well, we've been down to those wetlands and we were just in Louisiana. So same thing, wetlands everywhere. You're going on these swamp tours. There's swamp roses. I mean, all of these different types of things. And then we've been to the desert and we've been to the seashore and we've been to a forest. And I feel like my backyard is like a grassland. <laughs> I don't know. We may, we probably not been to the main grasslands, I guess. So that's a neat thing too, that you were talking, Laura, about the nature that's right outside your door. But it is neat that through the course of maybe a childhood or in your adult life, that when you go on a trip, even if it's not to study nature, it's just to go on a family vacation, that you could talk about what you're seeing at the seashore. Or if you get to go to a tidal pool, you can come back to this book as a reference. Was that some of your thoughts too about picking these five? Absolutely. Um, Sure. Because yeah, I think they're fairly accessible for many people. And there are biomes that span the different countries, you know, regardless of where you live, they might be within driving distance or even, you know, walking distance, depending on where you are. But yeah, that definitely plays into, you know, which ones we picked to learn about, I think. I agree. I think there's beauty everywhere and something to be learned and studied no matter where you live. You don't have to live on acreage. You don't have to live in an exotic place. There's something to appreciate outside of everyone's front door, even people who live in the city who feel like they don't have necessarily like an abundant access to these really wide open spaces. I think this book will show that there's still something that you can enjoy. One of my favorite things about the book is that the way each biome chapter is broken down, you have birds, mammals, predator and prey, like you two discussed. And then you also have the insects and amphibians. And it just kind of shows that similar classifications are everywhere. So Mm. you can learn to identify them and then you can kind of compare. You can see how they're adapted to those specific places. Um, Obviously, some biomes you more readily associate with certain classifications, but these things are everywhere and they're a little bit different, but that makes them unique and interesting to learn about. Yeah, like how in the desert chapter, it was talking about how 
you're going to have to help Laura. I don't know if it's frogs. There's certain animals that will go underground and basically become dormant yeah. if it's too hot or there's not enough water. Sure. Yeah. Amphibians do that a lot. Right. Amphibians aren't a classic like desert species that you think of, but because they tend to live in moist areas, um, but there are toad species that live in the desert that, yeah, will hang out in burrows under the ground until they, they hear the rains. Um, scientists think that like the raindrops on the ground, you know, signal to them, hey, like it's time to come out. It's safe, you know, <laughs> and they'll come out and they'll like reproduce and all in a really short span of time. It's like a metamorphosis in fast forward so that <laughs> they can complete their life cycle while it, there's still water, you know, around. So, yeah, yeah it's so cool. Oh, nature is so fascinating. Cool. I love it. <laughs> when the skies open up while others seek shelter, I embrace the rain. Heading to my favorite hike, the raindrops are like a soothing melody, and my Vessies ensure each step is dry and comfortable, turning a simple outing into a rather delightful experience. Whenever my kids and I are stepping into a great outdoors adventure, I love wearing Vessies stormburst boots to capture the beauty of springtime landscapes. Their robust style is perfect for our nature excursions, adding a little dash of elegance to our outdoor explorations. This spring, Transform how you view wet weather with Vessi. Their Dymatex technology makes their shoes not just waterproof, but a stylish barrier against rain and puddles. Whether it's a sudden downpour or a planned seaside walk, Vessi shoes ensure your feet stay dry and comfortable. Embrace the essence of spring with Vessi. From chic city walks to adventurous treks, find the perfect pair for your lifestyle at Vessi.com outside and enjoy an automatic 15% off your first order upon checkout. That's V-E-S-S-I dot com slash outside for 15% off your first order. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie-smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So get started today and get after your goals. Some of the things we love about Factor are their two-minute meals. You can fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. Our kids love the pancakes, smoothies, and more. And there's a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, including midday bites. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. And remember, to sign up and save, we've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash outside50 and use code outside50 to get 50% off. That's code outside50 at factormeals.com slash outside 50 to get 50% off. Yeah. And kids, I think in general, kids tend to focus in a lot of times on something specific that really fascinates them. And I think that that is a way for them to learn about the world because when you're learning about one thing in particular, a lot of times you can learn a lot of things through that study. So if a kid were interested in turtles, let's say, it would be a neat thing to study 
what are the turtles like in these different biomes? Do they exist? So because there's so much information in the book, you really do see that, well, hey, well, this is here and it's here. And I see deer, but there's also marsh deer. And you really could learn a lot about the study of a specific topic through the lens of what it looks like in these different biomes. I just saw a video the other day, Laura, that you found a box turtle. Oh, well, my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> we live on about 20 acres and we have some forest and some open space. And those box turtles love to come out in like right at the edge of, we have some trails on our property. So right at the edge of the trail. So they can like, I feel like <laughs> they put themselves there so they can get into the tall grass if they need to. That tall grass that you were talking about, we have that too. <laughs> it grows like crazy. So the box turtles will hang out kind of at the edge of that tall grass and the trail. And so we get a glimpse of them. Our dogs find them first usually, and um, they'll run up to them and sniff, sniff, sniff. And I'm like, oh, a box turtle. Yay. And and then the dogs will leave them alone because the turtles like go inside their shell and close it up. And then my kids, it never gets old. I mean, we've seen, you know, box turtle after box turtle, but we always still get so excited to see them. And so they're super cool creatures, but very different from something you would see in a wetland because they, the you know, box turtles are terrestrial. They live on land. They have tall shells. They don't have webbed feet. They're almost like a tiny tortoise. I was just going to say, you're making me think of our gopher tortoises. Okay, yeah. So they burrow in the sand banks around a lot of the waterways and yeah, no webbed feet tall shell. I love seeing one. Yes, that would be awesome. But very different from something you would find in the water that, you know, they look like a snapper. Yeah. Oh, we have those around here too. Yeah. I love them. Totally different. Well, we just saw one the other day, we were at a nature center and it came, I mean, you could hardly see it. Its head came up out of the water. You hardly knew it was there. Its shell was basically covered with stuff moss yes. i don't know <laughs> super blended right in the yes. only thing you can see is a little bit of movement in the water and that's how you knew that it was there so interesting just to study turtles and yeah. all the different varieties that there are my daughter came up the other day and they found a turtle it, they're coming out now where we're at and she was like it looks like it's painted i was like oh that's why someone named it the painted <laughs> turtle because that is what it looks like <laughs> well, so what go. a cool yeah. thing yeah, it does. It never gets old. And I think it combats the screens. I want to be fascinated by something that's not on a screen. That's not a Netflix show. I want to be fascinated by something that's real life. And I think that your book is such a good reminder that there's so much out there. Oh, that makes me happy that you say that because I feel that like to my core. I will never run out of things to learn about in nature. And it like brings me comfort. I don't know why, but um, just, you know, to know that there is always something I can learn on something new to find out, even about a box turtle. I'm sure there's things that I don't know about it, even though I've, you know, studied them for a long time. And, you know, it's just nature is so fascinating. And I think it does combat the kind of instant gratification from screens that kids get which is, you know, what keeps them coming back to video games and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. There's so much to be found out in nature that, you know, you can learn about and discover. It, it's just the best. I totally agree. And it's a personal connection. And so for especially children who are developing a, a personality and their own growth pattern into maturity, that personal connection is so important. Mm-hmm. And as a lifelong learner, this is connecting you to history because you think about, well, who, 
Who learned that these animals are burying in the ground in the desert and waiting till the rain? And there's a word for it. I don't even know how to pronounce it. Estivation. Yes. Estivation. Estivation. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. So someone has studied that in the past and we're continuing on in this study of nature. And so I think that's a really cool connection point that throughout all of human history that people have been fascinated by particular things enough so to study them and that we have this vast array of information and then we can continue to study them and learn new things. So what a neat thing. Uh, the book Nature School Lessons and Activities to Inspire Children's Love for Everything Wild, Inspire Children and Adults. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> alike, right? For Everything Wild. Tell us a little bit about the extras. You have an educator's guide. So the educator's guide is basically a way to make the book even more interactive and hands-on. It's a black and white guide. There are lessons and ideas for essentially how to expand on what you're learning, bring the education level up a bit. Maybe you're going to make a unit study in your home if you're a homeschooler. Maybe you want to run a co-op nature class or a hiking group or something like this with multiple kids. And you can bring the information in the guide and the information in the book for a, a roundabout lesson, so to speak, a new learning experience. But uh, the majority of the pages are black and white. They have essentially duplicate diagrams, processes, um, life cycles, anatomies, illustrations that are in the book, but in black and white. So children have the opportunity to fill them in with color, label them if they're understanding the processes, like for instance, photosynthesis and transpiration and the carbon cycle and things like that. Um, so it's just a way for kids to show what they've learned. Um, and if if any families who do home education are using it, then it's really helpful for parents because it's like, we did the work for you. You can use Nature School, the book, to round out a, a great learning opportunity at home. And you don't have to spend the time prepping and trying to figure it out for yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like a bunch of reproducibles that you could use yes. in your home or in your classroom mm -hmm. because they're black and white. What is the process of getting your hands on that? Well, if you've ordered the book when it is released in June, you will be able to go to the publisher's site. I believe you put in your receipt number, verification. And then um, I believe you'll be able to download it right from the publisher's website and you can print as you need. Okay. Well, what a cool addition. And people can order that book, Nature School, kind of probably wherever they order books, um, but then go to the yes. publisher's website and order to get that educator's guide. Has this sparked ideas for more books? Oh, goodness, Jenny. <laughs> Funny you should ask. Maybe yeah. just a few. <laughs> we have well, a river of give, ideas, a river Give of us ideas. a tease. Give us a tease of one or two or something. Well, something that I would like to focus on trying to get Laura and stuff on board stat is that a lot <laughs> of people don't, that, well, the people who don't enjoy being in nature that I know tell me they don't enjoy it because they're fearful. They don't know what's dangerous or not. They don't know what you're supposed to touch or not. What can hurt you? How can it hurt you? How do you fix it if you accidentally, you know, incur something? So I would like to make a book that kind of educates that aspect. I don't want to say the title. I don't want to say anything else, but, you know, mm -hmm. kind of helping people understand the dangers, I think will give people a lot more confidence 
to right. know what to avoid and how to be careful. And I mean, it's important to educate yourself on all aspects of nature, not just the beautiful things, um, but the things that can be dangerous. But then you you can also learn the benefit of those things. They might be dangerous to us, but maybe not to other species. They still have a purpose, you know? Mm-hmm. What do you think, Laura? Are you going to do it? Oh, I'm definitely, yeah, I'm definitely on board. Yeah, it's a good idea. I mean, especially too for travel, you go to new places and you don't know. I think the alligator one is actually a really big one, Lauren. We swim, <laughs> we've come and we now we swim some in the Orlando area. We swim in some of the springs and I cannot tell you how many messages I get about why are you swimming there? <laughs> and, you know, if you really look back, there's hardly been any deaths from alligators. Very few. It's very, I mean, it's like less than 100 or it's such a small number. It is a surprisingly small number. You would think there's been tens of thousands every year. Yeah. And it's such a small number. <laughs> we found a statistic. It was like going back to 1971. And it was such a small number. So it just really learning what to watch out for and is it breeding season and don't go in the marshy swampy water if you're out in the clear spring if there's a lot of people so i mean i'm not throwing it out there to say hey go swim with alligators but it's it's a <laughs> it's dispelling sort of this myth that if you put your toe in the water in florida you're gonna die yeah you're dead basically right right off the mm -hmm. bat never had a chance yeah <laughs> it's gonna grab your toe and it's gonna wrestle you to the bottom and life is done i mean i think right. that is a thought if you don't have the information so i think that's a great idea for a book and then even the aftermath like we've got some family members who've gotten some raging cases of poison ivy what do you do oh yeah right how do you handle that and how can you identify exactly. it so that you avoid it to begin with as well? You know, mm -hmm. misidentification is is a huge culprit. It's a huge problem of people incurring, you know, vulnerable situations. But having the knowledge beforehand, then you develop the respect and the appreciation. And then you're just you're careful through the whole process. But yeah. Yeah. Alligators are so misunderstood. They're my favorite <laughs> animal. I love them so much. And like Laura was saying earlier, if you're not a flora person, and I'm not, it is hard to distinguish what the leaves of three, I can never figure it out. So just to have some really good information <laughs> about what are we looking for? And it's really very few things, but there are things to look out for and to have good understanding of what they are and what they look like and how can you adequately identify when everything kind of looks the same. So right. I think that's an awesome idea. I have a friend that won't hike with me because she's scared of snakes. And I'm mm. like, I was just going to say, yeah, if you're snakes. walking down yeah. a trail, a snake isn't going to like just fall out of a cloud and attack. Right. Like it's not a boogeyman. It's, it's just a snake. If you understand the differences in their patterns, if you know, like, especially in Florida, they're primarily going to be hiding under pine needles and leaf litter. They're not going to be spread out in the open. They're not going to follow you. Just understand how mm. they behave, adjust your behavior to be respectful of their environment. But then it's not so scary. You can enjoy all of nature and what it has to offer safely. Agreed. And I think it's mm -hmm. important for the animals too, like snakes in that particular instance, misidentification results a lot of times in their demise because people are afraid and end up killing them. And it's, you know, a harmless, non-venomous snake species um, that no one had to be worried about mm -hmm. to begin with. 
And so, yeah, that that's definitely like a little soapbox yeah. <laughs> of mine, but I see that happen a lot. We have the indigo snake here. I think it's even, um, it's definitely vulnerable. It could even be endangered now, but people were, you know, killing them because they misidentified them as a water moccasin. Um, but they're totally harmless. And like a place like Florida, a lot of people have this spooky, like everything's poisonous, everything's dangerous, everything's out to get you. But even here, <laughs> I believe we only have five venomous snakes in the whole state. And they're not even wow. spread throughout the whole state. You know, they're right. segmented between northern. Same, same with Missouri. Right. And so it's right. like, okay, well, okay. So there's two snakes in, you know, a, a 150 mile radius that could possibly hurt you. Just know what those two are, know how to avoid them and be respectful. Right. And it goes back to the predator prey situation that each animal, each living creature serves a purpose. And so we don't want them to right. meet their demise if that doesn't have to be the case. I remember being at Honeymoon Island State Park over on the Gulf side with our mm -hmm. kids. And there was, oh, I've been yeah. There. yeah. <laughs> and there was a nature center in the area, in the beach area. And there were big signs that said, basically, stay on the trail. Don't walk through these certain areas because this is where the snakes live so if you just know their habitat and you're teaching your kids to stay on the trail then usually things are okay and so i think that's an awesome idea for a book lauren it would definitely help a lot of people so i give I it my vote so uh <laughs> so this has just been awesome so excited for you, you and congrats on this new book we always end our podcast with a favorite outdoor memory from your childhood so whoever oh. wants to go first. Oh, man. Okay. I'll tell this story. I'll try not to cry. I've told this story so many times. <laughs> so I oh, was no. maybe nine and um, we took a ton of trips when I was a kid. I think my dad took me on four or five vacations a year. He wanted to see all 50 states with me before I graduated high school. So I was maybe nine and we were in Pennsylvania, totally different biome than I'm used to. And Pennsylvania has chipmunks. Florida does not have chipmunks. Um, and so we were in the woods on a trail and my dad uh, saw this chipmunk and I couldn't see it. I don't know if I was too short or I just couldn't see that it was camouflaged really well. And most adults, I think, would kind of be like, oh, OK, well, you know, you missed it. Let's keep moving on. There's other things to do. You know, we got to meet a time constraint or whatever. They have other kids they're chasing after. Um, but my dad just kneeled down with me. And we must have sat there for 10 or 15 minutes. And he just waited patiently until I saw it. And I eventually did see him. Oh, I saw it. I actually did. Um, and it just made me so happy that he didn't give up on me and that I got to see this animal that I had never seen before. And so it made me feel valued as a child. And so I just, I, I've always carried that memory with me and I try to do the same with my kids as well. I had no idea that chipmunks were not everywhere. No. Me neither. I feel wow. like. Maybe northern Florida, but <laughs> I'm, I'm on the Gulf side. Yeah, I'm in the so Tampa area. Our squirrels, many our squirrels here. are pathetically small, but no, no chipmunks. Mm -mm. That is so interesting. Someone, I was just talking to a friend and she told me that her husband as an adult was like, why don't those type of squirrels get bigger? Why do they always stay baby squirrels? And she was like, because they're not squirrels, they're chipmunks. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. So interesting to learn about the different parts of the world and a cool incentive to travel. 
because you see new things, things that are only in certain places. So what a story. Laura, what's yours? And then we'll wrap it up. Um, That's hard. I think, I don't know if I have, well, I guess a specific memory, but we used to travel down where I current, well, around where I currently live now, but from Iowa down to Lake of the Ozarks. And my grandparents had a cabin on the lake. And so we would go down there every summer. And um, just in general memories of spending time outside with my dad, he taught us how to fish with a cane pole, you know, and um, he um, taught us how to water ski. He'd sit in the water with us while we were floating, trying to get our skis on. He'd hold our skis together um, for us. So when the boat pulled us up, we could have a fighting chance, you know, when we were learning. He was the most patient man. And those memories mean so much to me. Now he passed away about a year and a half ago. And um, so just all the memories that I have outside with him um, hold a special place in my heart. That's so sweet. That's just another reason to spend time with our kids outside because those memories do run deep. And then we have these touch points where we remember them through different smells and different experiences different weather and it reminds us of the people that we love once they're gone so what beautiful stories both with your dads and it's it's cool this book is coming out right after father's day and just a reminder that when we go outside with our children oh yeah you know we we really invest in them in so many ways so congrats on a new book lauren laura and stephanie who's not here huge congrats it's such a huge undertaking nature school it's a beautiful book people can find it wherever books are sold and then go to the publisher's website if they're interested in the educator guide thank you for your time it was so great to connect thank you so much for this opportunity jenny Yes, thank you. I really enjoyed it. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Bree. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Bree, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a No Guilt Mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model. So that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt-free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Get Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows.